Okay, Judges chapter 16 from verse 21, and uh, I decided to preach this, I know the Judges series has been in the morning, but it had been such a while, there's one or two different things going on over the next few weeks that I, I really wanted to can at least have some kind of sense of rounding off uh, Samson while it's still in people's memory, the story of Samson. So from verse 21, just after he's been betrayed by Delilah, and we read, Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, there's a, now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, Let me die with all the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple and the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. Thank God for his word. Let's just come and pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons that we've learned through Samson's life so far and we pray that as his life and his ministry, in a sense, reaches its close, that you will teach us more lessons tonight that are practical and relevant and applicable to our lives. Lord, speak into the hearts of your spirit now, we pray. Amen. Well, as we said, we're going to finish off our, our look at the life of Samson now by, by looking via the vehicle of, of his life experience one of the most dreaded experiences, I think, in life today. It's a word that most of us don't even like to hear. But despite that, I've still got to say it, that tonight we're going to be looking at failure, at the implications of failure, at what failure can say to us, might say about us, 
how we can learn to handle failure and how we should deal with failure. And just to begin, I've got two stories for you that I think illustrate very well two very different attitudes to failure. The first is the story of some peacetime manoeuvres by the Royal Navy involving a column of cruisers. They were apparently steaming along in formation when a signal was given to execute a 90-degree turn. The manoeuvre went off flawlessly, except for one cruiser whose captain, for some reason, missed this signal. This ship almost collapsed with the one in front, and when it swerved to avoid a collision, the whole convoy was thrown into total confusion. And only some very skillful seamanship by the other captains prevented an accident of disastrous proportions. When some order had been regained, the admiral on the flagship sent a message immediately to the captain who'd caused all the trouble. Captain, what are your intentions? Immediately the reply came back, Sir, I plan to buy a farm. You see, you see, that captain knew that that one missed signal, that one big mistake, had terminated his naval career. That because he was failed, he had failed, sorry, he felt he was finished. Failure for him meant dry dot. Now that's the attitude that many in our world today have to failure, particularly significant failure. That failure means you're finished. I'm pleased in this world as we are to kind of continue that, that naval theme. This seems to be an attitude that many in the church also have taken on board. That to really fail means to be effectively finished as far as God and his service is concerned. Well, what I want to say to you tonight is that that may well be the world's way. And it might be the Navy's way. It might even be our way as regards our view of failure. But it certainly is not God's way. For in Hebrews 11, we have what is often called God's hall of faith. And in this chapter, one by one, the great faith heroes of the Old Testament, in a sense, are March pastors. But you know, as you actually look at their lives, well, you soon see that many of these men knew times of great failure. Men like Abraham, Moses, David, even Samson, who between them were guilty of murder, adultery, and some of the very worst kinds of deception. How does this come about, though? How do failures become heroes? Well, let me try to illustrate something of how this comes about with a story out of the life of the great inventor Thomas Edison. For you see, Thomas Edison's approach to his work was to just to keep on trying, experiment after experiment. For instance, it's said that before he invented the storage battery, he actually performed 50,000 experiments. Now, for some of us, that would be inclined to get us a little bit down, would it not? 50,000 goes. Do you know what Thomas Edison's attitude to this was, though? Inevitably, his family said, after one of his failures, he would come to the dinner table and say with great and sincere enthusiasm, I had good results today. 
Now I know one more way it can't be done. So how does a failure become a faith hero? How can a failure be restored to be a hero? How? I believe as they turn to God in their failure. As they by confession are ready to face up to and deal with their failure. And as they are ready to learn from their failure. Yes, as we are ready to say, not Lord, because of this, woe is me, I'm washed up. But rather, what Lord, from this, do you want to teach me? And so, failures in the faith can become heroes of the faith. This isn't something, though, that we always, in fact, often find very easy to learn. So what we're going to do then is, is, is look at how this lesson really became flesh here in the life of Samson. And we're going to begin this process by looking, first of all, at God's discipline of Samson. So you see, the interesting thing about Samson, I think, is that for so much of his life, he never learned from his failure. He sinned and sinned repeatedly. There were terrible repercussions at times because of his sin, but he never seemed to learn from it. In fact, Judges 16.21 pronounces the terrible verdict on Samson, that he'd become so spiritually debased because of his sin. To use Paul's phrase in 1 Timothy 4.2, his conscience had become so seared because of his repeated and habitual sin to the extent, verse 21, that he did not know that the Lord had left him. You see, his sin had brought him to the place where his fellowship with God had so completely broken down to the point where the Lord had effectively removed his spirit and his power from Samson's life. And yet, because of his sin, his consistent, habitual, ongoing, repeated sin, because of this, Samson had become so spiritually desensitized that he didn't even notice that the Lord had gone. Isn't that... A scary thought, Lord, as to just where, through our sin, we can find ourselves, we can end up. In Christ, by faith and in eternity, and yet separated from the life of Christ effectively now because of our sin. But so spiritually coarsened and so spiritually lost that we have no awareness of where spiritually we actually are. Now, if that thought alone doesn't drive you to self-examination and prayer, then I suppose nothing ever will. However, neither we nor Samson can escape the consequences of our sin. No, one day, one day, either in this life or in the life to come, one day that sin will have to be answered for. As Galatians 6, 7 and 8 puts it, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And you know, as I, I look here in these verses of what Samson reaps for his sin, then what comes to my mind, just to show how cultured I, I actually really am, what comes to my mind are a line 
out of the Gilbert and Sullivan opera, The Mikado. Oh, yes. Where the Mikado says, My object all sublime, I shall achieve in time to make the punishment fit the crime. The punishment fit the crime. Because isn't it amazing, the parallels that there are here between the sins of Samson's earlier life and its repercussions here. As Gary Enrig, as he puts it, he says, notice how Samson's sin boomerang upon him. He had done what was right in his own eyes and followed the lusts of his eyes. Now the Philistines gouged them out. He had refused to discipline his own life. Now he became a slave and prisoner of his enemies. He had visited a prostitute in Gaza and escaped without harm. Now he was a prisoner in Gaza. He had pursued Philistine women. Now the strong woman was reduced to doing a woman's work in a Philistine prison. But what's perhaps I think even more amazing is that what happened here wasn't an accident. And wasn't just a, a, an act of Satan, though undoubtedly it was that, but rather that more than this, above and beyond all this, what happened here to Samson was an act of the disciplining grace of God. Now, we have to be careful here. I'm not saying that everything bad that happens to a believer happens primarily because they need to be disciplined by God. And therefore, it is directly related to the sinful state of their own life. I'm not saying that. Not at all. At times, we suffer in our life just because we're living in a sinful world and because of the general effects of that sin. Because, as the Bible says, because the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Though, of course, even there we know that as we turn to God, that, that God in his sovereign power can always turn Satan's worst to blessing and glory, to his glory and to our blessing. But what I'm saying, though, is that there can be times, as here was the case with Samson, when God allows suffering in our lives, even brings suffering in our lives, in the sense of handing us over to Satan as an act of his disciplining grace. You see, if like Samson, we refuse to learn from our sin, to learn from our failures. If we are so lost in, in self-confidence, so blinded by our sinfulness, then sometimes when we're in that place, God will strip away everything from us in our lives that keeps us from truly trusting in him. But, and again, please ask you to remember this, discipline is very different from punishment. And God never punishes the believer. He always disciplines him. And that isn't just a technical distinction. It's very important. Because you see, punishment is designed to satisfy justice. But discipline is designed to produce maturity and to restore us to usefulness. You see, God's purpose with his people is never to destroy us. It's always, in ever, whatever happens in our life, to build us up and teach us to trust him more. God's purpose is never to break his people. It's always to refine them 
and renew them. As Hebrews 12 this time says in verse 6, it says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Those he loves. But you know, I think there are many Christians who don't actually even give this a thought. Who never ask, why is this happening to me? And in the sense of, is there a lesson that I need to learn? Is the Lord trying to teach me something? Is this experience I'm going through a necessary discipline that because of where I am in my life, the Lord needs to put me through? No, rather, for many Christians, everything that they go through in life, every experience is assessed very simply on the basis of does this make me happy or does this make me sad? And if it makes them happy, then God's wonderful in the faith. Faith is great. But if it makes them sad, God's let them down. And faith is just a burden. And because of this, they live their Christian life going up and down, just bouncing from one experience to another. But they never even ask the question. It's not always, incidentally, the right answer. But they never ask the question. Is there something that the Lord is trying to teach me through this? Is there a lesson that I need to learn? Is this experience, hard though it is, a disciplining and therefore a gracious and loving act of God? But you know what the the root problem, I believe, is here? The root problem is that too many Christians are their own number one rather than the Lord being their number one. And it's because of that. It's because they are the the center of their own lives. It's because everything is measured in terms of their happiness. It's because of that that their Christian life is a matter of staggering from high to low, from joy to tragedy. When the Lord, though, is where he should be, when he's at the center of our lives, when he is our number one, when every experience in life that we go through is filtered through him and our relationship with him, well, it's then, you see, that our life fits together. It's then that we begin to be able to make sense of life and the the whole and the fullness of life. That's the problem, though, for many Christians. That at the heart of their lives, Their first concern is their happiness rather than God's glory. And that's why they can never get beyond the perhaps at times inevitable first question, you know, why Lord, why me, to the all-important question. What Lord? What are you trying to say to me? What are you trying to teach me in this and through this hard though it is? But let's move on from looking at the Lord's discipline of Samson as here he sought through these events to teach Samson that the lesson that he'd refused to learn, that is that we should love the Lord above all else, that we should trust in the Lord rather than in self. But let's move on from this to look next at the Lord's restoring of Samson. And here I want to draw your attention to something we touched on the last time we looked at Samson's life together in Judges. And that is that I see as a symbol. I see 
as a picture of the fact that at his lowest point, Samson had repented and had turned from his sin and had been restored in that lovely little detail in verse 22. But the hair on his head began to grow again where it had been shaved. Now, in a a few minutes, I want to draw your attention to to something I believe proves this, that what I'm saying here about Samson's repentance and restoration that it isn't just a figment of my imagination, it isn't a matter of me building up into something massive, what's actually an insignificant little detail, but that this really is an accurate picture of what the Lord actually did. But before I do that, I want to first just draw your attention to two things that I believe this, this symbol of Samson's growing hair teaches us, or at least draws our attention to, regarding restoration. And the first is that while forgiveness is immediate, no matter what I've done, no matter how I've failed God, I can always be immediately forgiven by him if I truly turn to him and confess my sin, turn from it back to him. As it says in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, although this is so, forgiveness is immediate, yet restoration, on the other hand, like growing hair, is more often a gradual process. Yes, that is that it so often takes time. It isn't always immediate. It takes time before we feel right again in our relationship with the Lord. It takes time before our other relationships seem to be right again. And often it takes time before we find ourselves being used again by God. And there is a a reason for this, and I believe a very good reason. You see, when we reach a point of significant failure in our lives, well, often, not always, but on most occasions, this isn't something that just happens in a moment. But rather, this failure is the result of years of rebellion against God. Years. Where as well as offending God by the way that we've lived, we've also hurt people, we've damaged relationships at the human level, and also along the way, we've picked up all sorts of sinful habits and patterns of life. We see, if we're to be truly restored to the Lord, then we have to take steps to mend these relationships with God and with men. We have to take steps to put things right wherever we can. And we have to take steps to unlearn old habits and to put new habits and patterns of life into their place. As it says in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, we have to put off the old and put on the new. Now, Now really... I believe what we're talking about here is what the Bible calls elsewhere repentance. That is turning away from sin and back to God. Now the problem, it seems to me, with with some Christians, and I don't think it's too surprising living as we do in the kind of instant age that we are today, where generally we seem to expect all the time instant gratification. The problem is that too many Christians only get as far as confession in their lives. And what I mean by that is that they bring their sin rightly before God. They do that, and that's right. 
And that sin is dealt with in an instant. It's forgiven. But then, because of what happens in an instant, Christians then think that they've got to do no more. It's a matter from that point of kind of just sit back and, and enjoy the blessings of their confession. Just let them wash over them the blessing of God. But you see, when that, that blessing seems in a little while to be at best limited, and when the Christian life, as they go on, doesn't seem to bring the, the kind of joy and fulfillment that they anticipated at that point of confession, well, then they, they feel, you see, they feel let down by God. And they even become bitter and angry at this God who they feel has let them down. The Christian life isn't living up to what they expected. But the problem, though, I want to say to you, the problem isn't with God. The problem is with us. For if we are to, to know all that God has, we've got to move on from that place of confession. If we're going to see our Christian life fully restored and so going to grow and develop and then be used and be blessed by God, then we've got to add to our confession repentance. You see, we've got to do what we said a few moments ago. We've got to repent. We've got to turn from our sin to God. We've got to take steps, practical steps maybe, to unlearn and distance ourselves from old habits and establish a new God-honoring pattern of life. And we've got to, where we can, put things right in order that broken relationships might be mended and restored. But the other thing that I believe Samson's gradually growing hair here points us towards is that despite all of this that we've just mentioned, the consequences of sin are not always erased. For you see, while Samson did grow new hair here, yet notice, he was not given new eyes. He wasn't made able to see again. And I, I believe that, again, is another important point. That when we confess and repent of our sin, although we will then always be forgiven and restored, yet sometimes still there will be consequences of our sin that we have to face up to. Like when Abraham sinned with Hagar, his wife's maidservant, and as a result of that, Ishmael, his illegitimate son, was born. Now, as Abraham repented of his actions, repented of what he'd done here, he was again used and blessed by God. And he was mightily and wonderfully. And yet the facts are that Ishmael is the father of the Arab race. The Arab race who in fulfillment of God's word in Genesis 16:12, have been throughout history and continue to be a thorn in the flesh of the true legitimate line of Abraham, of God's people of Israel. So you see... We can confess and repent. We can be forgiven and be restored, and we will be. But in certain circumstances, where the sin is grievous enough, there are still consequences of sin that have to be faced up to. Why, this was the, the case, wasn't it, here for Samson, for he was forgiven, and he was then here used mightily. But he was still blind. And he did still die. And exactly the same goes for us. We will always be forgiven. We will always 
be restored. We can always be used again, but at times there will be consequences of our sin. For instance, just one of them, maybe we won't be able to be used again in precisely the, the same ministry as we used, were used before in. For instance, I mean, if I walked out of here and maybe held up Morrison's with a gun, if I repented of that, I would expect God to forgive me. I would. I believe he would. But should I again be pastor of a church? I don't think I should. Although I'm forgiven, I think I would have lost my credibility in that role. Maybe not, but there you are. If you say it's okay. Anyway, no, no. <clears throat> but I said I would, I would give you proof that this symbol of Samson's growing hair really actually is a symbol of the fact that Samson has repented of his sin and be restored, been restored to the Lord. So what's my proof? Well, think about it. What was Samson's sin? What was his sin? The sin that, that God wanted him to have his eyes open to, to, to learn of and to turn from. What was the sin that God sought to drive home to Samson here by his discipline? We'll set it repeat it. Samson's sin lay in the fact that he was self-confident, that he was self-centered. It lay in the fact that he didn't live for the Lord, that he didn't really trust in the Lord. No, rather he lived for self. He trusted himself. We discovered that last time we looked at Samson. It's been underlined for us again tonight. But I would say to you, look at verse 28 of this chapter. Look at Samson's prayer. Now, you know, in the original, in this prayer, Samson uses three different names for God, just in the space of a few words. Something that was highly unusual, almost unique, that in the circumstances, I believe, serves to, to emphasize that this is a man here who is now totally dependent on God, that this is a man who now, at last, wants only to do the work of God and to glorify God. Oh, he wants revenge. He's still a man. Yes, he does. But you see, he knows that in that revenge lies the, the fulfillment of his ministry, what God had always called him to do. That is the beginnings of the end of the Philistines' grip on Israel. But let's finish by looking finally at God's victory through Samson. And there are all sorts of different details we could go into in, in, in God's final victory here. Like, for instance, the way Samson was made to perform like a, a dancing bear pulled about on a leash by a boy. This one-time tormentor of the Philistines, Philistines now being tormented by them. Or we could talk a bit about the lightly architecture of the stadium at Gaza that made all that happen possible. That is a, a covered portion where all the rulers and dignitaries would sit, supported by massive pillars set on bases that looked out onto a, a courtyard where Samson would perform. The general public, though, they would be massed on the roof of this, this big awning kind of thing that, that covered their rules. And you see, they were all fighting to get to the edge, all fighting to get the best view of Samson, to see his humiliation acted out before them. But in doing so, given this whole structure, the kind of instability that made Samson's final task all the easier. But what, though, I want you to take note of here, particularly, what 
I think it's all important that you understand and take note of is this. That if Samson had not been blind, he would never have been allowed near these pillars. If he had not been blind, this would never have been able to happen. You see, here God used the weakness born out of Samson's failure to enable him to do the mightiest work he had ever, ever done. Verse 30 says, Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Now, what I want to say to you tonight is that precisely the same is true for each of us because such is the grace of our God. That the Lord uses our weakness. That the Lord can use our failure. That he can take even the consequences of our sin. He can take us scarred and damaged and broken, though we are. He can use these things to give us a ministry again. A mighty, mighty ministry. Perhaps a ministry to those who are going through the same experience we passed through. But more, far more. You see, God can do that. All is not lost. All is never lost for the Christian. But only if and when we turn to him, call on him, and throw ourselves upon his mercy. You see, the Lord can use blind, broken, forgiven sinners. If and when they're ready to give themselves unreservedly to him. Failures can become heroes of faith. If only they're ready to give themselves and their failure to their God. Let's come and pray together. Father, we praise you again for the amazing way that you work in the lives of your people. We praise you for your amazing grace. We praise you that there's never a time when we've fallen so far from you that you cannot use us again. Oh Lord, we thank you that this is our God, our gracious God. And may your people here tonight know, each one, that there is always restoration, that forgiveness is always there for the people of God, that we can be taken and used by you again. Lord, speak into the hearts of your people. Minister to them that they might in their lives glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.